0: Well, greetings and welcome to the iFormerX podcast where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, the editor-in-chief of iFormerX and the host of the iFormRx podcast. And over the past few years, there has been uh, lots of excitement, lots of exciting data about the benefit of the sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors, not only to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events and the development of heart failure, but also their renal protective effects. However, one of the incidental findings in the CANVAS studies, which used the SGLT2 inhibitor canagliflozin, was a two-fold increase in the risk of lower limb amputation. And this led to an FDA black box warning being added to the product labeling. Since that time, several observational studies have been published with two manufacturer-sponsored studies suggesting there is no increased risk, and two studies using insurance claims data which suggested there was an increased risk. While the absolute risk appears to be small, a limb amputation is not only a scary outcome for patients, but can lead to lifelong debilitations. So we clearly need more data about who is at most risk for this serious adverse event in order to make better treatment recommendations and perhaps allay patient fears. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the iFormRx podcast today Dr. Amanda Chartle and Dr. Julie Daly from CareVio division of Christiana Care. Christiana Care is based in America's first state, Delaware, and serves patients throughout the Mid-Atlantic region. Julie and Amanda are population health pharmacists who work with a wide variety of patients every day, including children and adults with diabetes. If you are a longtime member of iFormRx, you'll undoubtedly recognize Dr. Shardle as a frequent contributor to iFormRx. So it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast, Amanda. And Julie, it's wonderful to have you here as a first-time contributor. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, Stuart. Hi, Stuart. Always a pleasure to be here and talk to you.
0: So before we talk about the study that you reviewed in the iFormerX commentary that you authored, I'd like to pick your brains on how you'd manage a patient case. I, I'd like you to imagine you have been seeing HG, who is a 71-year-old African-American man who was discharged from hospital a few days ago, and the patient was admitted to, uh, to the hospital due to increasing shortness of breath and poor exercise tolerance and was treated for a heart failure exacerbation. And this is his third admission in the past year. In addition to reduced ejection fraction heart failure, he has type 2 diabetes, a longstanding history of high blood pressure and dyslipidemia, and he's overweight. According to his medical record, the patient has been prescribed Carvedilol, 25 milligrams twice a day, lisinopril, 20 milligrams twice a day, Furosemide, 20 milligrams daily, canicliflozin, 100 milligrams daily, potassium chloride, 20 milliequivalents twice daily, and rosuvastatin, 20 milligrams daily. Uh, His current weight is 214 pounds, a BMI of 29.7 He uses a special home blood pressure monitor and the data is reported back to you and your electronic record and his blood pressure readings over the past three days have been 116 over 68, 108 over 60, 104 over 56 when measured in the morning. His most recent labs were drawn four days ago before hospital discharge and at that time his serum potassium was 4.2, blood glucose was 96, A1c of 7.1. LDL cholesterol of 76, HDL of 48, triglycerides of 107, and his serum creatinine was 1.4 with an estimated GFR of 45 mils per minute. Julie, I'm wondering what's going through your mind in a case like this. What additional information might you want to collect and assess during this encounter with this patient? And are there any additional treatment options you'd be considering at this point?
1: So thanks, Stuart. This is actually a very interesting case and something that we often see in our clinical practice. Given the patient was recently discharged from the hospital and had three notable admissions for heart failure in the past year, there are a few things I would like to know from the patient as well as from a chart review to better assess the patient's clinical status and their medication regimen. The patient has some notable low blood pressure readings. It is important to find out from the patient if they have been having any symptoms of hypotension. Also, given the patient was recently admitted for a heart failure exacerbation, it would be pertinent to discuss daily weights as well as some other signs and symptoms of heart failure such as edema and shortness of breath. These symptoms would be pertinent to be able to further assess the patient's fluid status. It is also important to address with the patient what their insurance coverage is and if they have any concerns regarding medication affordability. This may be important to know to further assess if he would be able to afford potential additional therapies that might be needed. And lastly, but certainly crucial to know, I would assess the patient's adherence to their prescribed therapy by ensuring the patient is taking medications as prescribed and that they have a system in place to remember to take their medications. In addition to the questions I have for the patient, I would also like to collect information from the patient's chart and the patient's pharmacy. I would like to know what the patient's baseline serum creatinine is to further assess the appropriateness of the patient's Lasix therapy to ensure the patient is not experiencing dehydration. I would also like to obtain fill histories from the patient's pharmacy to be able to objectively assess the patient's adherence. After obtaining all of this information from the patient and chart review, I now am able to assess the appropriateness of the patient's current heart failure regimen and the need for potential add-on therapy. Given the patient has been admitted to the hospital three times this year for heart failure exacerbations, I would consider three different options for add-on therapy to help reduce the patient's heart failure hospitalizations as well as improve the patient's quality of life. The three therapies I would consider are starting hydralazine-isosorbide combination, adding an aldosterone antagonist, or discontinuing the patient's lisinopril and starting in TRSTO. Although hydralazine-isosorbide would be an option given the patient's race, I would be cautious to start this at this time given the patient's recent low blood pressure readings. An aldosterone antagonist is a potential option for the patient. However, as noted previously, the patient's blood pressure is on the low side, so I would proceed with caution, especially in the setting of reduced renal function. I do believe Entresto may be the best option of the three. If the patient is able to afford the therapy, I would discontinue the patient's lisinopril and start Entresto. I would cautiously monitor the patient's blood pressure, not only when starting therapy, but also as titrating up since his blood pressure is currently on the low side of normal.
0: So, in the commentary you wrote for iFormerX, you reviewed the study entitled Risk of Amputation with Canagliflozin Across Categories of Age and Cardiovascular Risk in Three U.S. National Databases. And this study was published online in the British Medical Journal in August 2020. So, Julie, can you give us a brief synopsis of the study methods and the results?
1: This was a retrospective observational cohort study that pooled patients from three healthcare claims databases, which included adults with commercial insurance plans and Medicare Advantage plans. The objective of the study was to compare the risk of lower limb amputations between canagliflozin and GLP-1 agonists. Patients were categorized into one of four groups, and were matched in a one-to-one ratio. The four groups were based on if the patient's age was less than or greater than 65 years old, and whether the patient had baseline cardiovascular disease. The only significant difference in rates of lower limb amputation were found in the group of patients who were 65 years of age or older and who had baseline cardiovascular disease. In this group, patients who were taking canagliflozin had a higher rate of lower limb amputations than those taking GLP-1 agonists.
0: So I understand this was a cohort study, and one of the advantages of a cohort study is that we can analyze the outcomes of treatment in a very large population sample using existing medical records. The problem, of course, is that we can't control potential confounders. With that in mind, Amanda, what do you perceive to be the key strengths and weaknesses of this study?
2: Well, I definitely agree that one of the major strengths of this study is that the investigators were able to pull from existing patient information. So this allowed them to include over 300,000 patients, and because of the databases they chose to use, they had both working age and Medicare age patients to evaluate. Based on what Julie just mentioned, we can see that being able to include age as one of the variables in the pre-specified groups led to finding a significant difference in the rates of amputation. I think another positive of the study is that they included data from a four-year time frame. Specifically, they were looking at data from the time of canigliflozin's approval to when the FDA added the black box warning. And this longer time frame allowed the investigators to identify enough cases of lower limb amputations to be able to detect that difference between the groups. And this was really important since there were low overall rates of lower limb amputations seen in the population as a whole, which would have been even lower if that time frame had been shorter. The use of the GLP-1 agonist as the comparator group for canagliflozin was another strength, I think, because we know both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists are preferred second-line therapy in type 2 diabetes, especially in patients who are at high risk of ASCVD, heart failure, or CKD. Despite these advantages, there are several limitations that affect our interpretation of the results. Because this was a database study, there are limitations in the completeness of the data that can be pulled. So, for example, the study investigators had limited information about other baseline risk factors for lower limb amputations, which, as you mentioned previously, Stuart, can create the potential for confounding bias. Furthermore, because they relied on ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes, errors in coding, which are quite common sometimes, could have affected the interpretation of the results. Another disadvantage of this study is that the investigators focused solely on canagliflozin, and they didn't include the other SGLT2 inhibitors. Given that we have minimal data available about the risk of lower limb amputations with empagliflozin and dapagliflozin, and the fact that the data we do have has conflicting results, it's still unclear if this risk of lower limb amputations is only associated with canagliflozin versus being a class effect.
0: All right, last question. So, Amanda, let's return to the case. Recall that HG has been hospitalized three times this past year and was discharged on a number of medications, including canagliflozin. Do you think canagliflozin is the best option in this case? Would you recommend switching to empagliflozin or dapagliflozin instead, or perhaps switching to a GLP-1 receptor agonist? In what ways does this study influence your decision-making, if at all?
2: Well, certainly based on HG's multiple heart failure hospitalizations in the last year, I do think that an SGLT2 inhibitor could benefit him since we know SGLT2s significantly reduce heart failure hospitalizations. As Julie mentioned earlier, the study found a significant increase in rates of amputation with canagliflozin in patients over 65 who also had baseline cardiovascular disease, which the study defined as having a diagnosis of CAD, stroke, or TIA, heart failure, PVD, or prior amputation. Since his patient falls into that group of older age and baseline cardiovascular disease, I prefer initiating a different SGLT2 inhibitor over canagliflozin, since the risk of amputations hasn't been shown to be a class effect. But this is also going to depend on his insurance coverage and ability to afford brand name medications. Also, given the degree of his renal impairment, my preference would be to initiate empagliflozin over dapagliflozin since EMPA-REG outcome showed that empagliflozin was safe in patients with EGFRs as low as 30. If canagliflozin was the only SGLT2 inhibitor option we had for this patient, I think it'd be reasonable for him to stay on it, but I want to make sure we're doing everything we can to reduce his other risk factors for amputation. So for him, that could include increasing his rosuvastatin to 40 milligrams daily, since his LDL is over 70, in order to optimize his ASCVD prevention. I'd also want to monitor him more closely. We know that the Credence study was amended to include more frequent foot exams as a reaction to the results of CANVAS, and it's possible that this closer monitoring may have contributed to the lack of significant difference in rates of amputation seen in Credence. As for switching to the GLP-1 agonist, that wouldn't be my preferred option for this patient. While GLP-1s have been found to reduce the risk of CVD outcomes in patients with diabetes, they haven't found the significant reductions in heart failure hospitalizations that SGLT-2 inhibitors have. Additionally, SGLT-2 inhibitors have been shown to slow the progression of diabetic kidney disease, which would be beneficial in this patient since he already has reduced renal function.
0: Well, Julie, uh, Amanda, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the use of canagliflozin and the risk of lower extremity amputation. I think the risk is small, but real, particularly in those patients who are over the age of 65 and who have baseline cardiovascular disease. And whether we should be choosing one SGLT2 inhibitor over others, I'm not sure of that yet. So we still have lots to learn. Well, tell us what you think. Should we shy away from canicliflozin based on this data, or does it provide reassurance that generally it's safe and that the benefits outweigh the risks in most patients? Only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free, so please sign up today. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist or are planning to become a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, I hope you'll check out the board prep and recertification program offered by the American Pharmacists Association. We've partnered with APHA to offer iFormerX content for board recertification credit. If you'd like to learn more, click on the link posted below the commentary on the iFormerX website. Lastly, I want to extend a special thank you to ACCP's Ambulatory Care PRN for supporting our work. Some years ago, the Ambulatory Care PRN awarded iFormRx an innovations grant, which provided funding at a critical moment in our development. That grant defrayed some of the costs associated with website enhancements and helped us initiate this podcast. Over the years, many of the PRN leaders have been members of the iFormRx editorial board, and many, many PRN members have been authors and reviewers. Moreover, we really appreciate the PRN leadership allowing us to post messages about iFormRx commentaries on the PRN listserv. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormRx, signing off.